Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I am coming to you from Hong Kong, um, halfway around the world, and I'm here in the offices of Fresco Capital with founding partner Titus Mikalski. And with a name like that, and as soon you will hear an American accent, I guess we want to know where are you originally from, Titus? Yeah, so the story is uh, complicated. Uh, as the last name Mikalski suggests, uh, not from Hong Kong, born in Poland, then my American accent comes from watching too much American television, but I grew up in Canada uh, and moved to Asia 16 years ago. Um, spent time in Tokyo, Singapore, but really almost all of it in Hong Kong. I uh, did a brief stint in London in the middle just to uh, make sure that I didn't forget Europe, uh, but really have been based in Asia and that has uh, really influenced me and, and Fresco in a lot of ways, which is to think about things from a global perspective first. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, when we invest, we always start thinking about, okay, how is this company, how is this business going to become a global business? Uh, and it's not always the case that is relevant for every company, but it's becoming more and more important. Mm. And I, I, we're going to touch upon the global nature of Fresco in a second, uh, but before we go there, maybe we can take a step back and look at sort of education and, and sort of the... Um, the, the journey, your professional journey. So um, I asked you earlier how old you were. You told me you were old enough to know that uh, DVRs came and went. But, you know, just to give us a, a bit of, of, um, of background, uh, what, what did you study and then what, were you do, what did you do before Fresco? Sure. So my entrepreneurial journey um, started in the corporate world after studying finance in, in Canada and was fortunate enough there to be in university in a program that emphasized practical learning. So there was a program that gave five students the chance to manage real money and invest it in the stock market and the bond market with a, a committee of professional clients, etc. So fantastic experience on that, through that program and continued to invest in public equity markets in, in my first job at uh, HSBC Asset Management. So running around, meeting with big companies as a, a young person, telling them what's wrong with their strategy, right? Telling them, okay, why, why are you uh, not creating enough shareholder value for us? And that was fun and interesting and did that for a while. Um, but then came to the point after a few years where it was time to do something more entrepreneurial. And so in 2002, I, that was not a great year for people that, you know, weren't around then. It was a pretty dismal environment. Nobody was very optimistic. And so, of course, we did what the logical thing was, which was start a hedge fund when everyone thought that was a crazy idea. And so we did that. We got lucky. Uh, we were seated by Credit Suisse, who uh, gave us 600 million US dollars from day one. And then we scaled that into a 3 billion US dollar institutional platform uh, focused primarily on Asia. So that was based in Hong Kong. And we sold the company in 2006. So we had our exit. Uh, again, got lucky on the timing. And after doing that, for me, the best part of that whole journey was not necessarily investing in the public markets, but building the business. And so stayed with the new owners for a while, but they were not as entrepreneurial, moved on. And rather than setting up another hedge fund, decided to be more focused on entrepreneurship. Um, and that was the end of 2010, just when the startup ecosystem in Hong Kong started to pick up. 
And the first thought that I had was that let's focus on Asia uh, because the ecosystem in the U.S., especially Silicon Valley, is way too mature. There's no value we can add. And really came across the gap in the market that there were very few cross-border investors who could help people come to Asia. There were very few people who could help Asian companies go to the U.S. And so fast forward a few years, you know, our team is now global. Everyone has flying around all the time. And we've got multiple offices, including Silicon Valley. And so we're really focused on helping build these global companies, you know, rather than just uh, trying to focus on Hong Kong or Asia. Yeah. So, yeah, so one of the great things, as you mentioned earlier, was that your portfolio is now over 50% in the U.S., and then you have European deals like Pipedrive. Um, but one of the things that I think a lot of people always wonder about are the idiosyncrasies of the, the Asian um, market, in both in terms of size, mm-hmm. but also in terms of manufacturing capability and um, a lot of the um, a trade that, that kind of transits through this area. And I think that that's like the, an inherent opportunity that everybody really looks for. Um, what, what, are the, um, what are the myths that, that you would be willing to bust on this podcast about, about Asia in, in general? I know that we're based here, that you're based here in Hong Kong, but, but like just as a general myth uh, about maybe companies out there who are thinking about uh, cross-border mm-hmm. and, and they're thinking Asia's like, oh man, this is huge. What are the myths you'd love to bust? Yeah, so, so I think the, um, the thing that's most common in the media about Asia that's portrayed in the Western media anyways is an emphasis on the extreme because at the end of the day, you know, the media is trying to generate traffic and the best way to generate traffic is to find the extremes. And so you can go to China, you can go to India, and you can find the most amazing extreme things, whether it's these ghost towns in China that you know, don't have any people or if you go to Shanghai, you can talk about how there's some high schools in Shanghai which have the highest scores on standardized testing in the world. And so you know, some people will say, oh, they're making the smartest students. And technically, those extremes do exist. But the reality is that there's so much diversity in Asia, whether it's across countries or even within countries. I think that's the, that's the biggest myth or biggest mistake that people make is that they basically take their own biases you know, and, and so it may be the bias that, okay, China's going to collapse, and therefore I'm only going to focus on signals that show me that China's going to collapse, and you can always find that. Um, and we're certainly seeing that this week with the, with the stock market uh, doing what it's doing. Then on the flip side, some people will say, well, China's going to take over the world, and the West better catch up, look how hard they're working, and again, you can always find some evidence of that. And I think the reality is much more nuanced. There's always challenges. There are always things that are working well. And so figuring out what is it specifically that's relevant for a business in terms of opportunities and, and what are the opportunities and challenges. Mm. Interesting. Um, when it comes to um, thinking global, uh, one of the things that you probably are quite exposed to because of the nature of your firm is how culture varies and how talent and hiring and and. The, the retention of employees and, and finding talent varies from country to country. What would, how would you describe it? How would you contrast it here versus, let's say, in, in, in Europe or in the U.S.? Yeah, so I think talent is one of those challenges that we see everywhere in, in all of the markets. And I think one of the myths going the other way is people outside of Silicon Valley who think 
if only my startup was in Silicon Valley or San Francisco, then all my talent issues would go away. And of course, little do they realize that if, if you're a no-name startup from Hong Kong or Asia, you're actually going to have a harder time hiring the best people. And then when they start looking at the salaries that those people want and the equity that they want, then they really get shocked. And so I think it's about adapting to the realities of local markets. And so in Asia, there's a couple of uh, key differences. So then in markets like Hong Kong and Singapore, where size is a constraint, you know, the key has to be making sure that you have higher quality and either uh, going for that high quality from the start or training up young people from universities. And we've seen some companies that have successfully done that where as long as they know they, they have the ability to train people, they can go hire fresh grads and train them in best practices. Mm. On the flip side, for companies that are operating in China or India or Southeast Asia where there's just lots and lots of people, then you know, sometimes the answer is having just more bodies at the table. And so that's a difference. And, and I don't think there's a right way or a, a wrong way, but understanding the, you know, the, the weaknesses and the strengths of each talent ecosystem is important. Mm. And how would you describe the differences both in terms of talent, in terms of hiring, in terms of uh, economies and ecosystem maturity between the, the names that we all hear, which include Singapore, which include Korea, uh, to some lesser extent Japan, and of course Hong Kong with its ties to Shenzhen, right? You know, relatively close. How would you describe those differences? Yeah, so at the, at the really big picture level, what we see is that at an ecosystem perspective, there's the Bay Area and then there's everything else. And that's the biggest gap. And so even in other ecosystems in the U.S., you know, the, the gap is still pretty substantial. Now, when we go to Asia and we compare the different ecosystems, every ecosystem has, I think, you know, made a lot of progress, but also has a lot more work to do. And so if you look at each ecosystem, there's specific questions around you know, what are the challenges. So for, let's say, Tokyo, the, the question or challenge is how to have companies that are a little bit more international. Because Japan is, is a big enough market, but the challenge is how do they go more global? Uh, for China, you know, there's differences within the cities, right? So Beijing and Shanghai are very different ecosystems. Um, and say more, more broadly, when we look at China, the, the key question or challenge is that, again, the domestic market is huge, but because the infrastructure is very focused on the domestic market, even the largest companies that have gone abroad have faced some challenges, whether it's due to technical issues or cultural issues, you know, going cross-border has been an issue. And so Hong Kong and Singapore, as very small markets, do have that opportunity to position themselves as these cross-border hubs because mm -hmm. they tend to be a little bit more open. Uh, they tend to have that traditional role of allowing people to come in and out and have ideas come in and out. And so the key difference between Hong Kong and Singapore is that in Hong Kong, the government is supportive, but is one of the players, you know, and, and it's a very bottom-up, fragmented ecosystem. Mm -hmm. In Singapore, clearly the government is very active and is the key player in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that necessarily one is better than the other, but it is different. And so some people prefer one approach, some people prefer the other approach. Mm. Um, one of the things that we were talking about earlier was this myth-busting element to it. And, and you kind of laid the groundwork for people having a sort of a, a broader mindset about 
the, taking assumptions about how things operate and, and sort of leveling it a bit. But now let's go deeper, sort mm-hmm. of into very applied um, uh, recommendations. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we all read about are these horror stories about companies poorly executing an Asian expansion plan. So what are the common mistakes that you see in tech companies entering into Asia, whether they've chosen to go through Singapore or whether they've chosen to go through Hong Kong or any other one? Feel free to pick whichever one you, you see de- deem the worst. And what makes this challenging? Yeah, so starting on the, on the people side first, I think a common mistake is to parachute in a foreigner to do Asia, right? And parachute them into Hong Kong or Singapore and say, okay, you're in charge of our Asia strategy, you know, go and make it happen. And so the first problem is that person has no appreciation of the nuances in each market, and each market is different. And then a second problem is that that um, the complexities of, of the role is are so time-consuming, right? So that person just doesn't have the time. Um, so even for us, even though we're based in Asia, when we've expanded in Tokyo, we've added a local person in Tokyo. Like we, we don't have the assumption that sitting here in Hong Kong, we know what we're going to do in Japan. We need a local person on the ground. I think that's a good starting point. Then on the tech side, there's certain things that work outside of Asia, which still haven't exactly taken off here. So take one very basic example, software as a service. A lot of times, coming in with pure software to Asia as a business model isn't necessarily the best way to go because customers are used to buying stuff. And so when you tell them you want them to pay every month for software, they're just scratching their heads. They're, they're not used to, first of all, paying for software. And then even if they're paid for software, they want to own that license. So even though software as a service is this fantastic, amazing model, what some companies can find is that if they bundle hardware with software, they can actually get higher value in terms of the revenues, but also uh, get paid up front instead of waiting for monthly payments. And so that's the opposite of what you would traditionally think of as you know, the trendy business model. Mm. And I mean, that's very interesting. How would, so how would you discern that? How would you, I mean, what you said for, for Japan, you just went and you found somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, with a lot of startups that have like a, an established model that they're trying to scale up, what is the time that they should allocate to going there, finding a local person, and then adapting their business model, and maybe having a hardware partner to, if they're a software as a service company? Like, like let's pick up Pipedrive, for example, mm-hmm. since, since you're investors in, mm-hmm. in Pipedrive. Like, how would that fundamentally change their approach to the market? How, what's the lead time? Yeah, so with them, you know, what we've been focused on is helping them define which specific countries to focus on first and then have the right plan for engaging. And so it means, yes, you have to spend time in person. You can't do it virtually. Uh, and then, of course, to go deeper, having somebody local on the ground is, is key. So as investors, we don't tell our companies what to do. We give them our feedback and mm-hmm. advice. And at the end of the day, it's their choice. Mm-hmm. right? And so uh, it's not that we're sitting here pretending that we have the answers, mm-hmm. but it's, it's rather... We want to help the companies go in with their eyes open mm-hmm. so that they don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm-hmm. But, the, but those mistakes, like for example, if, if, if a company received investment from mm-hmm. Fresco and they were based in, say, London, mm-hmm. and then they were expanding into, into the Hong Kong market and then as a conduit, the larger yep. Asian market, what, you know, keeping in mind what you said about the role that you play as an investor, how can you shortcut mm-hmm. that? Are you basically saying, look, this is the guy that you need to talk to, and this is the new business model you need to do for this area. And I know that it's contrary to what your established modus operandi is, but this is what's going to work here. Is that, is that 
yeah, from so, the services that you guys offer? Yeah, absolutely. So we do feel that getting the right people is the most important. So the most important role we can play is helping find that local person. Because if somebody you know flies in from outside of Asia, it's going to be hard to figure out who are the real people and who are the people that are just talking a good game and don't really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes in Asia, the, the people that speak the best, most polished English mm-hmm. are actually the ones that are the least successful locally. Mm-hmm. Right? And you flip that around. The people that may seem less confident mm-hmm. and aren't doing the rah-rah pitch mm-hmm. are maybe the most successful ones. Mm-hmm. And so by being on the ground, whether it's through our direct network or through our contacts, that's where we're able to help out is to figure out those people that actually get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's the most important thing we can do. And then on the business model, you know, rather than forcing a company to change their business model, it's about being realistic and saying, okay, your existing business model just doesn't work for these countries. Mm-hmm. So rather than trying to come to Asia in 12 countries, why don't we pick the one country that we think your business model works best mm-hmm. and use that as the trial. Mm-hmm. Right? And that, a lot of times, is the discussion. And we do the same thing for our Asia-based companies. Uh, many of our Asia-based companies, when they go overseas, we help them figure out what is the best market to go first. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, a lot of times, it's not the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right? So we've got companies where Japan has been the first market coming out of Hong Kong. We've got companies where Australia has been a, a good test market. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, it's better to circle around the U.S. and come back to the U.S. a little bit later mm-hmm. when a company is bigger. Um, so that those myths actually work in both directions. Mm. That's very useful, very useful. Um, one of the things that I think people also have as a myth of, of Asia is both in terms of innovation, mm-hmm. lack of innovation, and cloning of innovation. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can comment on, A, is there innovation in Asia? Is there a perception about the capabilities of the, of the, of the people here to sort of generate uh, ideas that are um, you know, in line with what, what's at the same quality level as, as Europe and the U.S.? But fundamentally, should companies from abroad really worry about that whole um, the, the whole fear of like cloning and, and, and stealing of intellectual property? Yeah, so I think uh, the answer to everything is probably yes, which is yes, there's innovation, yes, there's copycats, yes, you should be uh, careful. And so I, I think there's things that people need to think about when protecting intellectual property and, and dealing with partners. Again, it goes back to is that a trusted party or is that somebody you found on a random website? And the reality is in Asia, going out for cold introductions increases the chances of risk significantly, mm. right? So there, there's that issue. But secondly, it's also worth being aware that just because a company is large and famous in Asia, that doesn't mean that you should trust them. Mm. So you know, there's some large companies that may not always be the best behaved. Mm. And that's important to know. And, and people aren't going to write about that publicly. You have to find that information out behind the scenes. Mm. Um, so the, having that market knowledge is important. Then in terms of innovation, absolutely there's innovation. I think, though, there's still a challenge with the education system here mm-hmm. where most people have been trained to take orders or look at what's, what's been done in the past. Um, but as we're moving forward, what we are seeing is absolutely much more innovation in Asia. Um, and so what it's, it's primarily people that have spent time overseas or people that have been in the local education system and rebelled. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's, it's the outlaws, right? True entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. 
I think the real challenge for Asia is changing the education system, and, and that's a 10 or 20 year project. Mm-hmm. No, that's very interesting. Very interesting. So, um, to help shortcut development for, for founders, one of the sections we like to add is books that you recommend mm-hmm. that, that have been influential for you or that you have found particularly useful for founders that you're working with. Yeah, so one book I would highlight is The Connected Company, and it essentially gets to the core of this structural change where you know, the, the Industrial Revolution created this model of the factory. And even if you look at the service industry, whether it's our fast food industry, whether it's hospitals or education, it's essentially a factory system, right? You come in as an input, there's a process, and you get spit out as an output. And so there's a huge shift going on away from factories and towards networks. And that has all sorts of implications in terms of how you deal with people internally, how you deal with customers, and something as simple as uh, the fact that if if you're set up in this way, what you typically end up with is a front end that interacts with customers, which is much more dynamic mm-hmm. and uh, allows people on the front line to use their brain and engage. And then at the core, you have a very robust, strong, uh, central architecture, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the, the core infrastructure, and then you have this dynamic external facing component of the company. And so it's a, it's a really powerful way of thinking about it, and I think it's, um, it's really the, the way that successful companies in the future will be built is around a network. And so the book is called The Connected Company, and it really goes into detail about all the implications of that. And very apropos vis-a-vis the strategy of Fresco. Absolutely. Um, in terms of uh, things that you are passionate about outside of work and outside of venture, um, we like to always end things with an, uh, an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug uh, something you're passionate about, whether it be a charity or cause or anything like that. Did you have any in mind? Sure. Uh, let me let me give you one that we do have a, a relationship with as a fund, but it is a nonprofit, and we are passionate about it. That's why we have a relationship there. So the the nonprofit is called Room to Read. It was started by a former Microsoft executive who uh, went to Nepal and realized that there were places that should have books and don't have books. Mm. Uh, simple problem and yet not a simple solution. And so they've, they've been tremendously successful. They've uh, brought many, many books and now schools to children all across Asia, also Africa. They do a lot of work in the local communities. Um, so it's not just you know, flying in from up high. They actually do get very engaged. And so we're excited by it as, as people, as individuals, um, but also we've committed to donate part of our performance fee um, to Room to Read as a as a nonprofit. So, roomtoread.org. Uh, I believe that's the website. But just you know, Room to Read and and any sort of search engine will will get you there pretty quickly. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, Titus, and hopefully for the, for those that are listening, uh, it was very useful to get Titus's perspective on Asia and global investing. Thanks for having me. All right, bye guys. Bye.